the same time we do thank God that he gives us his Holy Spirit that guides us gives us the words that we need at the right time and thank God that he has given us his word that we can actually dig into the word and let scripture speak for itself this morning I wanted to continue with the book of James now um, for those who are in the live group sorry you might hear things that you've already heard before for those who aren't we actually in, in, in our little Bible study we are working through the book of James and the more I'm digging into this the, the more profound it becomes now if you can recall a few months ago actually by now I actually preached on James chapter 1 verse 19 to 27 that says be doers of the word not hearers only and if you can recall that but what happened was is that's like jumping into the middle of something amazing and losing out on the rest and so the last time when, when I preached and worked through an overview of the book of James and we saw what the book of James is all about and how the book of James is essentially can I say a series of tests that tests our sanctification it's not like the book of John that tests our salvation but this book tests our sanctification to see whether we pass it or not and at the same time tests how can I say mature we are as Christians how is our spiritual growth like are we growing spiritually because it's good to check ourselves it's good to intercede or to do intercession um, on ourselves and see where we are at spiritually because in the end of the day we need to grow the book of James uses this words it says show me your works and I will show you your faith our salvation and our action in the end of the day works hand in hand right? our works do not save us but our works are an evidence of our salvation and if there is no increase in works I think it is a good thing to start questioning even our salvation and so this is what the book of James essentially is all about is this series of different tests so what I want to do is just as a quick recap last time we looked at the book of James we saw that it is basically a series of about 13 different tests of our sanctification the first one is the test of our perseverance in suffering the test of blame in temptation who do we blame when we are tempted third one we find in um, verses 19 to 27 chapter 1 it's how do we respond to God's word and we looked at that in quite, quite um, depth last time then the fourth one is it's a test of our love is our love partial or impartial do we favor certain people and not favor others fifth one is the test of our works do we have righteous works or how is our actions like seventh or sixth one is the test of our tongue can you control your tongue and let me tell you I think this is one that a lot of us battle with most of the time is the control of the tongue because who can tame that thing such a dangerous little thing seventh one is the test of our humble wisdom eighth we, we test ourselves in our worldly indulgences how how do we indulge ourselves into the things of this world how do we act when we think about the things of this world ninth one we test ourselves on the dependency who do we depend on in every situation if I'm sick who do I depend on when I'm not well who do I depend on if things aren't going my way where is my dependency on if I say I'm gonna go do this and this and this do I say I'm just gonna go and do it or do I say God willing I will go do the following because my dependence are fully on God the tenth one is how do we endure do we have patience in our endurance eleventh is the test of truthfulness how truthful are we 12th we see how prayerful are we 
And then the 13th one is, do we really have true faith? This is basically the overview, and this morning we're going to be looking at just, can I say, an introduction <laughs> to the first one. Now, in Love Group, we spent, I think, quite a few weeks just going through the first 12 verses of James. This morning, I wanted to do an overview of this, but in my preparations, I came across something much deeper, much more profound. And so I would like you to please turn, although we're going to introduce this first test that we find in the book of James. We're going to be looking at this from the book of Genesis chapter 22. So can you please turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. As you do this, can we just close our eyes in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can have your word. We thank you so much that your works, word speaks to us. Thank you that you have not just given us your word, but you've preserved it for so many years that we can have it this morning, that we can learn from it, and that you can speak to us through your word. Father, we thank you that we can humble ourselves before you and submit to the authority of Scripture. And Father, as we handle different topics and as we discuss especially a, a fairly sad topic this morning, I pray and ask that you will fill us with a peace and a joy that you promised that we will be able to rejoice even when we sorrow, that we'll be able to look up and see you, Father, and not be tied down to the sorrows and the sufferings of this world, but, Father, that you will fill us with strength and boldness, Father, and with joy that dispasses our understanding, like you've mentioned it to us. Give us the peace that we need and help us to hold on to the things above and not the things of this world, that your name may be glorified in and through everything that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 22. We've just read it this morning. It's the story of Abraham and Isaac. Just before we dig in to Genesis chapter 22, while you have that open, I want us to look at a quick background on the book of James and, and introduce the topic that we're going to be looking at here in Genesis. The overarching can I say theme that we see here is the amazing work that God has done when he provided the ram for Isaac but there's so much more in this passage that is almost heartbreaking it is extremely sad that's what we're going to be working through it's a test that Abraham had to endure that is far beyond anything that we ever had to endure now before we get there we need to introduce this by seeing why are we going to approach it this way now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I've been listening to him, I'm enjoying quite a lot of his sermons, and in one of his introductory sermons on the book of Romans, he actually mentioned something interesting. He said, it's interesting if you look at the Bible, that it is not chronological. If we look at the book of Genesis, and we look at the book of Job, Job came years um, before the book of Genesis, yet it's the beginning of the Bible. In the New Testament as well, the books aren't chronological. That begs the question, why? Why is it not chronological? What led the early church to formulate the Bible in the way they did? And so, as he explained it, he said that there is this logical flow. And the more I looked at it, I went to go look at different, uh, can I say, timelines and themes and overviews of the New Testament, and I discovered, but there's a very interesting narrative that connects with 
the Bible, especially the New Testament. If we were to break this storyline open of the New Testament, we see that there's a beginning and there's an end. It starts off with the Gospels that introduces us to Jesus Christ, that shows us the life of Jesus Christ. In essence, it is establishing the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He's not just a man, he's not just a prophet, but he is the Messiah. According to the scriptures of the Old Testament, just as we read in the book of Corinthians, he came, he fulfilled every single prophecy that he had to fulfill to prove to us that he is the Messiah. And so the subject, essentially, of the whole Bible, but especially the New Testament, is introduced to us in those first four books. Later on, we find the book of Acts which is basically a continuation from the book of Luke, and it describes to us the early days of the Christian church. How did the church um, form? What happened um, with the church? It includes the ascension of Jesus Christ, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and how the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul and Peter and even some others went into the world and spread the gospel so that everybody can come to salvation. And so we see this narrative start unfolding. The Messiah is introduced, and now the Messiah and the gospel is taken to the whole world that's out there. Then we find the next, can I say, chapter, if, if we will. That is the Pauline epistles, all the way from Romans to um, Philemon. I'm probably going to be corrected on that pronunciation. Is it Philemon? <laughs> I don't know. In Afrikaans, it's Philemon. So I'm going to stick with that one. And basically, these letters um, of the Apostle Paul basically outlines Christian theology. It outlines to us ethics and practical advice of um, the Christian communities, it digs deep into the different doctrines, specifically the doctrine of justification. So the Messiah is introduced, the gospel goes out there, now we are introduced with what the gospel is and how we come to salvation. Because imagine for yourself the early church, this person was like this, the next moment he changes. Imagine for yourself if you were to see the Apostle Paul, knowing he's a persecutor of the church. If you were to see him, you're going to run because, I mean, this guy is scary, he's going to kill you right now. And the next moment, it's just somewhat different. If you didn't know why, you will sit there like, what is going on? And so this is what these chapters or these books is all about. It explains to us why we change. It explains to us the deep doctrines of justification and a lot more. It tells us so much about our faith, about the nature of sin, the role of law in our lives. It tells us so much about who we are in Christ. And then the next chapter gets introduced, starting with what we can coin the general epistles from the book of Hebrews all the way to the book of Jude. And we see this shift that takes place. And now suddenly, instead of just focusing on doctrine and on, can I say, this expansion on justification, we start seeing how the teaching changes and it starts focusing on teaching the church. It starts focusing on warning the church on encouraging the early church um, communities. It emphasizes faithful living, perseverance in face of trials. And so we see the story unfold from Jesus to the spreading of the gospel, people coming to salvation in Christ. Now people are being told, this is who we are in Christ. This is what justification is all about. And now persecution comes. And they are facing trials. Imagine for yourself if we didn't have the scriptures. And these trials starts falling and this persecution from outside comes and you heard maybe that God, um, Christ said, we will suffer for his name's sake, but we didn't really understand it because we knew we we're Christians. Something amazing just happened in our lives. We've changed. And the next moment, it's oppression like you cannot believe and everything goes wrong. 
And this is what these passages are all about. It's teaching us when we are facing trials, why we are facing it, how to live within these trials, how to live in a sinful world. Yes, we find a lot of amazing doctrine in all of these books because God is amazing when it comes to the living Word of God. But basically, these, these books are, can I say, a inverted commas, how-to guide now that you are saved. And the book of James falls within that category. The book of James is approaching an end and it is speaking to people that are saved. It is speaking to people that have now come to salvation, that now understands justification and who we are. We understand the influences of sin. We understand that we were like this and now we are changed and we something new. And now we might sit there and be like, now what? Because, I mean, it was just said that we no longer follow the law of Israel, essentially. What do we do now? How do I live? And that's what these passages are all about. And then finally, we change with this amazing symbolic imagery describing the end times. It gives us clear images of what the end is going to be like. It tells us about the final judgment. It tells us about this new heaven, this new earth. It's a book of hope. It affirms the ultimate victory that God is going to have over sin and over evil. Now we see that Christ has already overcome sin. I just need to put on my timer because uh, I'm my dad's son. Um. And so in this amazing narrative of the New Testament, James is strategically placed in this position that tells us now that we are saved, we need to understand sanctification. And James is almost coming in this spot where it says, okay, we've explained a lot of, just, um, of your sanctification. Now let's test it. It's giving us a test, but at the same time, practical advice. It's not just coming there and saying, you know what, this is what you're supposed to be. No, it says, here, here's advice. Here's some practical ways in which you can live out a godly life. Here is things that needs to be visible in a Christian's life. I can almost say it is, it's for us also an amazing test to spot these wolves in sheep's clothing. Because as this warning comes of trials and as these false teachers start entering the church, if we were to test ourselves firstly and then others according to this same test, I think we'll be able to spot those wolves much easier as well. The challenge is we need to test everything to Scripture and to the criteria of Scripture. And that is what these tests are all about. And so the introduction from the writer from James is, he, firstly, he addresses the, the, the um, brethren from the 12 tribes that were scattered abroad. So we see they, they within current, very current um, persecution. They are undergoing tremendous uh, suffering and trials and different tests. I can imagine for myself if we were to suddenly be oppressed and we are family, we're nice together, we... Um, can I say, I have fellowship with one another. The next moment, there's a bunch of military people coming into church and they're scattering us apart. Maybe we lose family members. Maybe we lose our possessions. We lose our home. Our lives are in danger. We don't have food. And we are running for our lives all over the show. In essence, this is the mindset. This is kind of, say, the context that the book of James unfolds in. It's this oppression, this suffering, this persecution that the believers are undergoing. And he tells us very early on in verse 2 that we need to count it all joy. Imagine for yourselves for a moment. We are sitting here 
you have lost loved ones. You have lost everything you've worked your life for to those who are older. To the children, you won't understand that, sorry. You have lost your possessions. You can't go home because your life is in danger. You need to run somewhere. Maybe you are used to having a bath every single night because it's comfortable, it's nice, it's fun, it's good. Now you can't. You have to sleep in the dirt. Someone like me, you guys know me, um, I do that for fun, but there's something wrong with me. But imagine for yourself being placed in that situation and then somebody comes and tells you, count it as joy, be glad about it, be happy about it. How is that possible? How can you joy if you've just lost a loved one? How can you joy when you've lost everything you thought you worked for? That's impossible. And this is what James is addressing. And he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. This word trials, and I'm going to be referring to it um, every now and then within the Greek word. The Greek word here is pyrasmos, which basically is more than just what we know as a trial or a test. This word here basically means um, trouble or something that breaks the pattern of peace, comfort, joy, and happiness in someone's life. The verb form of this word is to put someone or something to the test with the purpose of discovering that person's nature or that thing's quality. God basically tells us that these trials that we're going to go through when used as a verb, as, an, as something that happens to us or that we sometimes experience, it is a test that we go through that will discover our nature, that will discover the quality and prove to us what or who we are. It is the equivalent of taking a diamond, putting it under a microscope and making sure it is this fancy diamond. You can't just take up any stone and look at it and think, oh wow, cool, this is a diamond. I think I've mentioned it before, but I used to do that. <laughs> My brother and I, we would go around looking for diamonds or what we would think is nice gems and one is just a white stone. But it is when you take those stones and examine it, we realize what it truly is. And this is what this test is. It is literally the discovery of the nature and the quality of who we are. And within the context of where this book lies in Scripture, it is tests that discovers the nature, which means the fact that we are saved. It confirms the fact that we are saved. And secondly, it tests how our quality is, what our sanctification is, how mature we are in Christ. But it starts off with the word tests, and that we need to count it all joy. Now a question that has to come up into your mind as well is why? Why? Why must I count it joy? Maybe you even ask yourself the question, why is this happening to me? God, why are you doing this to me? Why am I undergoing all of these various trials? God, why are you taking this person away from me? God, why are you putting me through this suffering? You can even go that far saying, what have I done wrong? Why aren't you blessing me? There's so many why questions when it comes to our trials and our tests that we need to start thinking ourselves why do tests exist in the first place we need to have an answer for that why is God allowing these tests 
on our lives if we are his children? There's this question that comes up in a lot of debates nowadays, especially between Christian and atheists, and it is the question, if God is so good, why is he allowing so much suffering in this world? I'm telling you, a person that has to ask that question in the first place has never experienced Christ. Because the moment you've experienced Christ, you understand what sin is. But before that, you're never even going to think of sin. You're never even going to think about the problem and how bad sin is. Because we need to ask the question, why hasn't God destroyed us yet? Instead of asking, why is God allowing all of these trials on our life? If we understand that God is a holy, righteous God, our question definitely should be, God, why am I still alive? And so I'm not even going to look into that question. I'm going to look at this question assuming that you're a Christian, you have experienced Christ, you have experienced the transformative power of the Holy Spirit in your life. When we face trials, we do not face them with the question, why God? We need to face it with the question, what can I learn from this? Why is this trial important to me? And to do that, I would like us to now look at the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. I, I personally like thinking of the book of Job when we go through trials. When I think of trials in my own life, I like referring to the book of Job because, I mean, oh, what a sad moment he had. Lost everything. He almost lost his own life. But reading through Genesis 22 and really studying this, I came to realize, you know what? I think this might be one of the worst trials anyone could ever endure. I was preparing on James 1 to just work through that systematically. And uh, I came across John MacArthur's commentary and he referred back to Genesis chapter 22. And then when I worked through that, yo, can I say it struck a chord in my heart. So what we're going to be looking at is, can I say, an extreme case of trials. But I want you to put on your thinking caps and pull through the principle that applies when we read through this passage. And I think to yourself that this can apply to any parasmos, any type of trial that you undergo that is not comfortable, that is not fun, that is not a good thing. Right. As we work through this passage, I'm going to stop. So we're not going to read in one go. It's already been read in one go. So I hope that you have the context, the whole story in your mind. I hope you've known of the story already. But we're going to work through this story one piece at a time and just see how sad yet amazing this story is. It starts off in verse 1. Now it came to pass, pass after these things, God tested Abraham this is the same type of test that James refers to he tested Abraham we are all going to go on a different various types of testing and God sometimes allow these tests for a purpose and so that is why this morning I want to focus on the theme of the purpose of trials why are we undergoing these different trials 
And he said to him, Abraham. And he said, Behold, here I am. And he, um, God said, sorry, let me just. And he said, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son. And listen to these words. Take now your son, your only Isaac, whom you love. He's not saying just take someone. He's saying take your only son, Isaac, whom you love. This, think, think about this. This is a narrative. This is a story. And the way in which it is written, it's in the form of dialogue. We can almost, can I say, think to ourselves, this is exactly how the conversation went. So God is rubbing it in to Abraham. Take your only son whom you love. Later on, we're going to see why Abraham deserved to love him. This isn't just any son. And go, he continues, and go into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell you about. God comes, he says, I want a sacrifice out of you. And I don't just want any sacrifice. I want your son. I want a human sacrifice. I want something extreme. And I want you to go there. Notice, not just do it now quickly. I want you to go there to the mountains. I want you to kill him and offer him to me. Put yourself in the shoes of Abraham if you're a parent. If you're a child, put your in the shoes of Isaac or maybe imagine for yourself someone else whom you dearly love and you have to go and take them and kill them I was thinking while I'm preparing I was thinking and I couldn't help it I think of my grandparents reaction the first time my dad was diagnosed my grandma's reaction every time something were to happen with my dad my grandma's reaction when something happens to my dad's brother when my dad went for this procedure, she phoned me, and uh, or worse, because we had some discussions like, don't be anxious, don't be, don't, don't be, can I say, sorrowful? She says, but you don't understand the love of a parent. Unfortunately, I don't. But I can tell you that I can see through the reaction of parents that the idea of a child being sick is insane. Now imagine if God told you to go and kill your only child whom you love. If you were to take that child and willingly plunge a knife into his chest and kill him. I was reminded of several of our members here in church who has lost children. And now we have had discussions with them and how sorrowful it is to lose a child. And we see different reactions from different people. I'm telling you, it looks like it's one of the greatest tests and trials a human can go through is the loss of their child. It's a very similar, in a sense, if you lose someone close to you. And so if, you, if you're not a parent, I want you to keep in mind the loss of someone greatly that you love. Remember that at that time, Abraham is sitting there and there's no history in the covenant of God of any human sacrifices. 
Abraham is sitting there and he's, in his mind, he's thinking human sacrifices is a pagan thing. God has never asked for a human sacrifice before. Why is he asking me now for human sacrifice? And that, my only son that I love. It's insane that if we think about the backstory of Abraham, we realize that Isaac wasn't just any son. He got his son at a very, very old age. He got his son when him and his wife can no longer naturally give, uh, get children. Isaac is a miracle child. He is the promised child. He is the one that God said will take forth and become, or can I say, become more than the sand of the sea and more than the stars of the air, of the sky. He was the son of hope. Sarah was barren her entire life. And now God comes and calls for a human sacrifice of that son. What went through the mind of Abraham? He, he had to struggle in his mind with all of these questions. He had to struggle in his mind with why God? Why, why, why? The only thing that he loved that we read about to that extent is his son Isaac. Abraham sat there and he had to endure an incredible trial. Something that made absolutely no sense. It didn't make sense theologically. It didn't make sense in terms of God's own nature. It didn't make sense in the, can I say, redemption plan that he had for Abraham and Isaac. It didn't even make sense in terms of God's love or his own love for his son Isaac. If we were to think about it clearly, I think it's a perfect time for Abraham to stop and say, God, why? I need to understand this. There's something going on that doesn't make sense. This is against who you are. This isn't how you are. God, can you please explain? And can I say, in our human minds, I think we would have done it. <laughs> I don't know if you would, but we probably would have asked the question, God, why? Instead, Abraham doesn't ask a single question. Verse 3 says, And Abraham rose up early in the morning, saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. What? Early in the morning he arose. He didn't hesitate. He didn't question. He didn't delay. He didn't argue. He didn't fight with God. He didn't even have a negative reaction to God. As the morning came early, he rose up and he took his son. He took some people with him, and there they went. I th think to myself, imagine what went through the mind of Abraham as he journeyed towards the mountain. Approximately three days. Walking there with his son next to him. Taking everything that they have to take for an offering knowing that this is the last moments that he's going to have with his son. 
until he himself has to plunge a knife into his heart. When he has to burn him as a burnt offering. But no, instead what Abraham did was he tells the men, stay behind. When he saw, he lifted up his eyes and he saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to the young men, Abide here with the donkey or the ass. And I and the lad will go there and worship. And then check this out. And come again to you. Here is the climax. This is big. This is huge. Within this insane trial that he is going through, he says, I'm going to go there, me and the boy. We're going to worship God and we're going to come back to you. Wasn't he supposed to go kill his boy? What Was his plan different? Did he suddenly go and say, you know what, I'm going to go there, but I'm going to act like I'm going there. No. He had the plan. He was set in stone. He's going to go and worship God the way God asked him to worship, but he had such faith that him and his boy is going to come back. We'll both come back. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He took fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, and where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Imagine for yourself if your child had to look up at you and say, we have everything, but where's the ram? And you have to sit there knowing what you have to do. This is an insane trial that you're going to go through. Isaac wasn't just any boy. He was trusting his father. He just went with him. Later we see, where is lamb? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for burnt offering. So they went both of them together. God himself will provide for him the offering. Note that. His faith in God was so much that knowing what he's about to do, going through with what he's about to do, he said God will provide. He knew. He, he, he just knew he can trust God. Later on, we read, And they came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham had built an altar there. Please note, <laughs> he's building an altar there with his son. He's busy building it. He's following everything, and he's doing things, knowing that he's going to sacrifice his son. Then he laid the wood in order and then bound his son Isaac. Nowhere do we read that Isaac fought back. Isaac trusted his dad. Isaac was respectful. He was submissive under his dad. He went with no struggle and was laid on the altar. All while Abraham believed 
God. Have faith that both of them will return and that God will provide a lamb. And there he's binding his son on the altar. When he tied him up, he laid him on the altar upon the wood. Abraham stretched forth his hand, took the knife to slay his son. I imagine in my mind, here's the father, and he's standing with his knife over his son's chest, about to kill him as a burnt offering to God. That's how far he already went. That means he had all the intention to kill his son. He was at the point of plunging that sword into his son. He was obedient literally all the way to that end. It was so insane if we have to think of it in human terms. It is completely the opposite of what he knew about God. God's expecting a human sacrifice. That goes against God. It must be so painful for him to stand there because it's not just any son. He loves that son. Standing there with a sword, with his knife over his chest, it is a murderous act. He's going to have to sit with that for the rest of his life knowing that he killed his only son whom he loved. It's so con inconsistent with everything that he knew about God. But yet, he was submissive under God and he was obedient. Abraham will worship God at any cost. Despite the trial that he's going through, he will obey God. And in verse 11, And the angel of the Lord called to him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. I think to myself when I read this double name, Abraham, Abraham. Almost as if Abraham was in the motion already. Now we don't read this. I'm just, as, as I'm picturing it, it is that close. He's in the motion of killing his son. And the angel comes and he says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham goes, um, and he said, here I am. And he said, lay not your hand on the lad, neither do anything unto him. For now I know that you fear God. I get shivers up my spine when I picture it. He's about to slay his son. And the angel comes, Abraham, Abraham, do not hurt your son. And he stops there and he looks at him. And he says, here I am. And he says, don't touch him because now I know that you fear God. To such an extent that he was in the final process of offering his only son that he loves. This was a test. And Abraham passed with flying colors. If God were to score, that would be an A++. Because all the way to the end, he did everything God asked. He would obey the word of God no matter what. Even to the point of offering his only son. And we read, you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham shows us that we might be tested. And we can be tested with things that is extremely close to our hearts. 
It might be so dear like a son or a daughter. It could be a husband or a wife or a friend or a parent. We may have to offer up our own Isaacs. We might have to offer up our own loved ones, whether it be in death or in life. At times, we have to sacrifice and just offer up someone in order to obey God. We shouldn't question God, but we should willingly obey Him and continue till the end. Abraham was willing to give up Isaac no matter how much Isaac meant to him. In every way he showed by being willing to give him up. Now we're all going to face our various trials. Like I said, this is an extreme case. Offering your only son. But we're going to face various trials, no matter what it is. Some can be so insane that we can be like Abraham. And can I say, we can almost think to ourselves, questioning God, listen, this is going against everything that I know of you. Why, God? But instead, we should be like Abraham and obey no matter the cost. We see that the tougher the trial, the tougher the obedience. If the trial is small, it is fairly easy to be obedient. But the tougher the trial becomes, the more difficult, the more difficult, the more difficult it is going to be to obey. In Hebrews 11 verse 17, we basically find a, can I say, an add-on or an explanation on Genesis 22. The amazing book of faith, explaining to us the, how, how faith was the reason that these people came to salvation. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11, we look at verse 17. How was Abraham able to do what he did? At the same time, think to yourselves. We have the Bible. We have these stories. Abraham didn't have those stories. Abraham didn't have the Bible to clarify to him who God is. He had some things, yes. And he had a relationship with God, but he didn't have what we have. We have a big privilege having the Bible, especially the New Testament. We even have a bigger privilege with the Holy Spirit that helps us to have faith. Hebrews 11 tells us how Abram was able to do this. It says, uh, in the the first two words, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, here's a confirmation that he was tested. When he was tested, and when he was tested, he offered up Isaac, Isaac, And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac shall thy seed be called. How did he do this? Verse 19. Accounting. Basically, he was taking note of, he was thinking about the fact that God was able 
to raise him up, even from the dead. Abraham has never seen somebody raise up from the dead. At least we don't read about it in scripture. Neither did, can I say, Abraham have every, any physical evidence that God is going to do that. Were you capable of doing it? Yet he said, I will obey. I will do knowing that even if it has to come to the point of killing my son, God will raise him up from the dead. That is why he could go up the mountain and say, we will both come back. He wasn't intending to fake Abraham's death. He was fully intending to offer and sacrifice his only son to God in a form of worship and in full obedience. Having faith that God's promises will come to fruition. God will stay true to his promises. Even if it means raising my son from the dead. Without evidence. He didn't know. He just knew that God promised. And he held on to that promise. Abraham is considered the father of faith. And when we read this story, that makes 100% sense why. What kind of faith and trust did he have in God to take his son there, to undergo this tremendous trial, taking three days, building the altar, willingly laying his son on the altar, having his son willingly lay on the altar, knowing what's about to happen, and yet his son does that willingly. That's why I say he deserves to love him. He isn't a rebellious son where you actually want to kill him. He's a model child. And he loves him dearly. Abraham went through this insane trial. And he passed. And why did he pass? Because he trusted God. It is incredible to me how when we go into trials... How we would say that we trust God, but in the end of the day, we don't really do. Will you go to the extent of killing your child in obedience to God? Going through the trial, trusting in everything that God said. The thing that kept Abraham going, the thing that stopped prevented him from stopping at the foot of the mountain. The thing that, can I say, rose him up early in the morning and took everything to do the offering. That very thing was his trust in the promises of God. His trust in knowing who God is. God made a promise. God's going to keep to His word. In this, we see... Can I say this amazing perspective on facing trials? This amazing thing that opens up as we look at these different trials. And what I did was I I made a comparison between what we read about, especially in those first verses of James, and this amazing story of Abraham. See in Abraham's story. Abraham this, um, demonstrated an unmovable faith. 
no matter what. His faith in God being willing to, uh, his faith in God to such an extent that he was willing to sacrifice his only son whom he loved dearly. In James we see something similar. When we face trials, we need to demonstrate true faith. As we demonstrate it, we will act different. We will not act like the way the world does. Genuine faith is a, can I say, it produces good works. It produces things in me that is contrary to my natural um, response. It's different than what I usually act like. So if I am inclined to question God, if I'm inclined to pull my fist at God and say, God, why? If you start getting angry at God, frustrated at God, we need to be reminded to trust in Him. And our actions should change based on that trust. See, a mature Christian will trust in the everlasting hope. A true Christian will look at the loss of a family member knowing that they are with God. Having an eternal hope that is with God. Knowing that God is going to raise them up again in the last day. Having trust in that fact. If we need to, can I say, sacrifice in sorts our loved ones in order to obey God, we need to do that as well. Because our actions will demonstrate the faith that we have in Him. As we work through James, and Lord willing, um, when we, we actually touch James itself, we will look at it in more depth. When trials come, the reason why trials come is because it strengthens our faith. Trials don't just come for no reason. Yes, we endure trials because of sin, but every single trial strengthens us as believers. No, can I say, now it makes sense why James can come and tell you, count it as joy. Because God said that He will build our character, God said He will make us more holy. God said that He's going to work patience in us as we go through these trials. We shouldn't look at tests and just ask the question, why is this happening to me? We should look at these tests knowing, trusting that God is going to work something in me. If I were to bring back the story of James as well, if we were to be scattered everywhere, going through these difficulties, through this suffering, what can keep us going? Our trust in God. Trusting God that He will make a way. Trusting God that He is our provider. Trusting God that He will have His perfect will in our lives no matter what. Not trusting God that He's going to remove all the pain and suffering from us and give us this amazing, comfortable life that we so desperately pursue. But trusting that God will have His perfect work in me. Not necessarily making sense to us. Because just like Abraham, he went through that trial not knowing why. All he knew was go to the mountain and sacrifice to God. Worship God.
trials, they come to humble us. Abraham was brought low. I can sometimes imagine to myself how emotionally and physically he must have suffered. He must have bowed down to the inner man saying, but maybe there's another way. It humbled him to an extent to go and worship God. Trials helps us focus on things above and not on things of this world. When we face, can I say, a lack of prosperity, if we face a trial of losing possessions and stuff due to thefts or fires or whatever, how do you act within that loss? If we drop the mindset of holding on to these worldly possessions and start focusing on an eternity, on, I want to quote almost what we read in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, and store up treasures in heaven and not on this earth, it won't even be a trial when we lose stuff. See, that is why James is a test of our sanctification. How do you react when you lose, can I say, stuff? I recall my dad once in a um, sermon mentioned how it is so easy to accumulate stuff. And sometimes, we actually mean, um, spoke about it just on Thursday, in our pursuit after all of these riches, that we lose focus of the things that are truly important. Trials helps us remove our worldly focus and focus on things above. Trials also gives us this amazing hope for an eternal life. In James, we actually see in verse 12 how he closes when he speaks about trials and we'll look at it at another stage. It says to us that those who will remain steadfast, those who have endured, those who have passed the test of swords, they will be blessed and receive the crown of life. When we undergo trials, we can know that we will have an eternal life. My dad and I, we so often speak about this idea and especially with the current trial that we are in it is inevitable to go into the direction of speaking about death and our mindset of how we look at death not just the death of those around us but our own death in many people's lives and i have met some they are so scared of dying that they want to do anything they can to extend life. They will try and do anything to hold on to their lives. The anxiety of death fills them that they don't even enjoy their life anymore. And I've seen that with my own eyes, unfortunately. What happens to us as Christians and something that must happen in you, that must grow in you, is when you are faced with trials, and especially the trial of death, whether it be your own or a loved one, we need to look up and trust God. And that trial will not work anxiety in you. 
if you do get anxious when thinking about death, you are not spiritually mature. Because a spiritual mature person is going to look at death and be like the Apostle Paul and say, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He could say that because he understood God's promises. He trusted God. He had faith in what God told him. We see that trials also revealed to us the things that we really, really love. Now I'm running out of time because I had several more papers on just this point. So I'm going to try and summarize this. The things that we hold dear, the things that we love most, will be tried. It will become evident in your life. Abraham did not love Isaac more than he loved God. He loved God so much more that he was willing to sacrifice his only son whom he loved. Going against everything that he knew and believed about God, he was willing to still go and sacrifice God, trusting that God will even raise him from the dead if it has to. When we face trials... It becomes evident what we really love. Let me tell you, in the day and age that we are living in, and I am more and more seeing some of these false teachers just preaching prosperity and preaching comforts and preaching things of this world that in turn our minds will be taken away from what is truly important. And that's the things of heaven. Our minds are taken away from obeying God. to saying, I will obey God in as much as He blesses me. Job was blessed at the end. Abraham was blessed at the end. After they passed their test. Our blessing is to come. That is why it's an eternal hope. If we truly love God, we will obey Him despite the trial, despite the test, despite the discomforts, we will obey God. We will not be consumed by the pursuits of the things of this world. We will not be consumed by the love of money and of mammon. We will not be consumed by our family. It is so easy to even make family our idol or make them our biggest love. In Luke 14, verse 26, Jesus actually says, He says, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sister, and yet his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Note these words. words. He cannot be. Not it's going to be hard to be. Jesus says, he cannot be my disciple. Now, this hate obviously does not mean that I, in, in, in our terms of hate. It is basically referring to, um, let me just find my papers. Like I said, I had to jump. Um, he says, and what it means is, if you do not love God to the degree that you're willing 
if necessary, to cut yourself off from your father, mother, wife, child, brother, sister, um, friend, and even your own life. If you do not love God to the max, if you do not take up your cross and follow Him, sacrificing yourself as a living sacrifice, you cannot be His disciple. And that is something that proves to us, it tests us, it will show you the quality of your spiritual life. Is when you undergo these trials, when you are faced with these persecutions, um, with, with these temptations, when you are faced with these difficulties, how pure are you in Christ? And that, I believe, is why James can come and say, count it as joy. Because the purification process is not fun. The purification process is going to be hard. But trust God. Because in the end of the day, you will be more like Christ. You'll be more pure. You will be stronger in your faith. You will be a better example. Your character will change more and you will glorify God. Just like what we read in Ecclesiastes. Everything of this earth is vanity except for one purpose. And that is to glorify God. And as we put on the context hat again and remember where the position of James is in Scripture... We need to understand now that we are saved. You have to bring into memory who God is. How much God hates sin. You have to bring into memory the holiness and righteousness of God in order to understand why we need to pursue His glory. Why we want to become more and more and more holy. Because if we do not understand who God is, this is going to mean nothing to you. You cannot have joy in your trials if you do not understand that it draws you closer to God. You cannot have joy in your trials. You won't understand the purpose of your trials if you don't understand that it's going to form your character more and more into the image of Christ, that you become more and more holy, that you in turn will glorify God more. Because the moment you understand that, there is no greater joy in this world than lying down and thinking of the time when we're going to go to heaven and hear, good and faithful servant. But you need to understand who God is in order to understand this. And we end with, can I say, the transition to where James chapter 1 verse 2 to 12 really comes into play. That trials makes us stronger, helps us endure it works patience in us. In turn, that patience makes us perfect and complete so that we will lack nothing. And next time, Lord willing, when, when we dig into James again, we're going to be looking at that. Trials, in short, grows our faith. Why do we have trials why do we have tests it's to purify us it's to sanctify us why can we count it as joy because it makes us more like christ it makes us perfect and complete it makes us glorify god more that means when we face a trial 
we can rise up early in the morning and we can obey God no matter what He asks of us, knowing and trusting Him. All the things that He tells us in Scripture, whether it makes sense to us or not. We can give a loved one to death. If they're in Christ, we can glory in the fact that they are with God. We can cut off ourselves from those we love in obedience to God. Although it might hurt us for a short while, we can glory in the fact, we can rejoice in the fact that this trial is going to grow me more into the image and likeness of Christ. And we see as a closing, and this we see in Abraham's story, and we also see this in the book of James, just how God has intervened at the last moment and spared Isaac's son, showing him this amazing grace and mercy. We can almost see to ourselves, if we pull back what happens in the Gospels, how God himself has sacrificed his only begotten son. How Jesus had to die for us so that we can be saved. Imagine what God had to endure as well. But what we see here is God's amazing grace. How He makes a way where there seems to be no way. How God is there to do and to fulfill His promises even if it doesn't make sense to us at that moment. God's grace is sufficient. If I enter a trial no matter what it is, I can rest assured that God is in control. I can put my trust and faith in Him knowing that He, His grace and His mercy is sufficient to pull me through this trial. James also tells us that at the end we have this blessing of eternal life. We get to experience God's grace and mercy firsthand when we go through a trial. We are drawn so much closer to God in our trials than we are in our prosperity. The psalmist said it so nicely. Just as Abraham had faith despite not understanding, so we too can have faith sometimes despite that not understanding. Can we close in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that that we can rest assured in you. Thank you that we can know that you are the living, almighty God, the creator God, the one who has life and death in his hands. Father, the one who has created the world, the one who keeps the ocean in place, the one who keeps the stars in place. Father, the one who works all things together for your will. Father, despite our sin, despite our problems and despite who we are Father you still are in control and Father although we face trials where sometimes for us personally it feels like you aren't thank you that we can trust in the fact that you are and always will be the creator God who is in control thank you that we can rest assured in your sovereignty that you will work out all things together for good to those who love you that despite not understanding, Father, that you will 
work in us. And Father, as we face trials, I pray for each one of us that we will have joy knowing that you are building our character. Father, that we will have the joy of knowing that this trial will lead us closer to you and make us more like Christ, that your holy name may be glorified through us. Help us to have the mentality, the perspective on trials, that we will rejoice in that fact, knowing that we will glorify you as we grow more in our sanctification. Father, help us to never turn against you. Help us to, in our actions, not blaspheme you. Help us to face a trial in faith and in trust. Father, for we so easily become caught up in our flesh. We become so weak and we cannot endure these trials. So I'm asking, Father, that you will work it in us. Give us the strength that we need. Help us to have the wisdom that we need at the times when we need it. That when we face trials, that we will know why we are facing them. That we will learn the lessons that we need to learn as we go through these trials. Father, thank you that we can bring all this before you, knowing that you hear us, knowing that you listen and that you answer our prayers, knowing that you are with us every waking moment, that you never sleep, never slumber. And despite our occasional rebellion against you, despite our questioning, Father, that you always come with this amazing grace and mercy and draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray this.